at IMS, typically a weekend retreat is largely designed to take care of new people, beginners especially. And so a typical weekend retreat would have a, a very high percentage of people totally new to the practice or very new to the practice and new to IMS as a place of practice. Okay. Um, Michael and I decided to try an experiment, and that's what this is. Actually, I know the result of the experiment because we've done it elsewhere. It's not um, coming dropping from the sky. It's just, a, I think, sensible. I hope you'll see it that way. Uh, and what it is is an attempt to... Um, take into account those of us who have already been practicing for a while, who already understand what uh, Vipassana is, have been here or someplace comparable, have some degree of commitment to the path and to the practice. And the question becomes, can we, in a short time, three days, can we create a form in in some ways uh, guide the form so that there's a certain intensity that we can all develop together, which is harder to accomplish when half the room are people who uh, are just beginning and have certain kinds of questions, who uh, have a difficult time sitting still and not even sure why they came, and so forth. I don't know, maybe you fit into that. <laughs> because all we said in the brochure, we this is for old yogis, but maybe everything being relative. I don't know. But we're assuming that, uh, and that's why we're, we phrased it that way. We're assuming that all of you do have that commitment, that all of you are are here to practice. And so um, the question is, can the quality of our practice, even though we have uh, a few days, because all of us uh, are uh, have passed a certain threshold, certainly motivation and commitment, I hope, uh, that we can make such use of these few days that it's really invaluable. Part of that would be because it's relatively homogeneous. That is, if we can assume that everyone who's here has already been in combat and that you're, you've come back for more, uh, which we do assume, uh, then all of us practicing together can inspire one another. Okay, let me suggest in what ways this might be slightly different than than retreats you've already done because uh, how different can it be? We're not going to hit you or scream at you or anything of that sort, but there are subtle ways in which uh, we can all encourage one another to really uh, give our whole heart to the practice. First off, it may look as if there are two teachers here, but there really are three. Michael and I are going to do our best, but the third teacher, perhaps the the star, is the schedule itself. And so what I would suggest is that you look at the schedule as your teacher and that you make every sitting and walking. Now let me describe uh, what and why. Perhaps you've already done that on some retreat. Fine. But as you know, um, we often allow the flexibility. It's it's not that uh, making every sitting, taking that on as a practice itself, 
uh, is the supreme way to practice. It has certain virtue. Different things can be learned when we um, sit, whether we feel like it or not. Then again, when we give you more latitude, when you can uh, sit and walk and then elect not to come to a sitting, that can uh, be very, very useful in terms of maturity, in terms of developing your maturity in regard to guiding your own practice. Uh, One discipline is just to stick to a schedule. Another is the discipline of... uh, beginning to trust your own intuitions so that you know that there are times perhaps where sitting is not what's right, not what's called for. That would be wise. But in this retreat, we're going to emphasize that, that uh, we all sit and walk together. At least uh, um, we won't be able to... We will be attempting to sit with you. Obviously, some, at least one of us and I think most often both of us, sometimes if we can't understand that that's because there are, in leading a retreat there are other things that uh, we have to do. Um, if you surrender to the schedule, that means whether you feel like it or not, you drag your body into the hall and you sit down. You fold your legs and you begin to practice. If you surrender to that, that in itself uh, can be a very wonderful kind of uh, training, but only if it's done in the right spirit. Uh, By that I mean, obviously there are going to be times when probably everyone here will not feel like coming into the hall and sitting, will not feel like doing the walking meditation, but rather just sip tea for 45 minutes or half an hour. And what we're suggesting is, uh, if you sit only when you feel like it, you only get to know the mind that feels like sitting. You don't get to know the mind that doesn't feel like sitting. In my experience, I found that getting to know the mind that doesn't want to sit can sometimes lead to wonderful surprises. As you look into the resistance, as you look into self-pity, as you look into all the different uh, songs that the mind sings to lure us away from Uh, practice, using very convincing language, so that um, you would get an opportunity to work with resistances, with whatever turns up. And so you can imagine, uh, uh, I see that as valuable, I don't know if you do, but it has to be approached in the right way. Uh, Let me suggest what I think is one way to approach it. A friend and uh, colleague of ours, Corrado Penza, has a a book on Vipassana in Italian. It'll be translated into English in a while. In English, it's translated as uh, what he is calling Vipassana practice, or this style that we're doing here. The quiet passion. I think it's a very, very, it's one of the best phrases I've heard to characterize this particular style. Not all forms of vipassana are practiced that way, but this, uh, a lot of what goes on here is. It's quiet in that it's, uh, we're silent for the most part. Perhaps we talk in interviews. We do talk in interviews. Or sometimes a job calls for it or something comes up. But it's, uh, in a certain way, rather unassuming. There, there, there are not many um, 
Not much color. Not much. It's a low-budget film. It's just sitting and walking, sitting and walking. There's not too much around it. Not too much ceremony or ritual, chanting, incense, bowing, all kinds of things. Uh, not that they're bad. They also have a purpose. But the style is one of very quietly and simply, but passionately, looking into ourselves. Because the point is not to make each sitting and walking. It's not training and becoming a robot. But rather to learn about ourselves. And that takes passion. But it's a rather subtle kind of passion. It's not something that's dramatic and may, it may not be visible. It's not uh, passion in the sense of wildly expressive with your body or with your uh, speaking. But very quietly and unassumingly and very subtly, um, a gentle but decisive commitment to the moment, to waking up to how each moment is. And that's what I would suggest. That is one of the most important uh, skills to learn in our practice is this ability to be with what's there. Uh, everything that we read about and hear about, the, the potential for liberation flows from that ability, which is uncommon because we're not, by and large, not educated to be with things as they actually are in a given moment. We have our preferences and we avoid what isn't pleasant. We avoid what isn't to our liking. And again, it's not to say that uh, that is uh, stupid because that's just natural to go towards that which is beneficial and pleasant and to avoid that which is painful. But so that, for example, if you are approached, if you surrender to the schedule and sometimes you feel as if you uh, really don't want to sit, what I'm suggesting is not that you march yourself by brute force into the hall and establish a kind of master-slave relationship with yourself. You get in that hall and you sit down. Is that clear? This, isn't, this is not Marine Corps training in that sense. But rather, you openly and honestly uh, face those energies inside of you which don't want to come into the hall. It's not to overpower them. Sometimes you do have to help it along a little bit. But the, the important element here is the constant development of self-knowledge. Beginning to look very carefully without judging at those energies which are, which are resistant to something. It's not so much overpowering the resistance or overcoming it, but opening to it becoming intimate with the resistance itself, and then subtly and gently but decisively guiding yourself into the situation and practicing with whatever is there. And we never know what's going to come up from moment to moment. Uh, so that the intensity that uh, we can all build up is not going to be a kind of hysterical, uh, frantic, desperate, veins popping out of our neck, jaw tight. It's gentle and it's subtle, and it's quiet. And it's also, at the same time, passionate. It's a commitment, not really to being a good boy or a good girl, but to getting to know yourself. And so a schedule, which, if you surrender to it, has a way of bringing things up that normally uh, 
perhaps we're able to avoid or circumvent. And so that's one aspect of how our time together here can be well spent. As I said, uh, Michael and I are going to attempt to join you. We'll do as much as we can, too. So it will be all of us practicing together. We won't always feel like sitting either. I hope that doesn't disappoint you. Now, I usually do feel like sitting. I have to... I do love this stuff, but there are times when the body hurts, you're a little tired, and there's some, it's beautiful outside, of course. We're, we're human, too. Uh, the other way to um, create, in three days, a, a wonderful atmosphere where we all uh, support and enhance one another's practice is by understanding that, uh, my understanding of this practice is that it's about our whole life. Uh, that it's not just certain elements that we uh, prefer and then we discard what we're not interested in. So it's a commitment to live wholeheartedly. There's a daily life on a retreat too. Sometimes we speak as if there's a retreat and then we go back to daily life. Uh, Roughly that makes a little bit of sense, but there's quite a bit of a daily life here. We still do the very same things that we do at home. We wash and dress and eat. We go to the bathroom, we wait, we pause, we go from here to there and from there to here. We sit down and we get up. There's a lot connecting in between the formal practice of sitting and walking. And some of those moments seem uh, rather ordinary and routine and we're not particularly interested in them. So the mind makes up a reality that is more interesting. Perhaps it... uh, digs back into the past, some other retreat that was wonderful, or it makes up some other uh, version of where you may get to when you get back to the sitting. Just see it. And the whole art is to be with what's there. Not what should be or what used to be, but what is. And you'll see that this is a major thrust of practice. Very, very often there's a discrepancy. I don't know you personally, most of you, many of you a discrepancy between what is, that is, the the facts of the moment, exactly how it is for you, and what should be. The mind is endlessly preferring to be somewhere else. It's endlessly leaving, not being in touch with the actual life that's happening. But that's the only life we have. Daily life is the only life we have. We either meet it or we miss it. Far as I can tell, there are no other choices, no other options. When we meet it, we're fully alive, even if it's unpleasant. When we don't, we're half alive or even dead, kind of sleepwalking. You know, um, there was a recent research study about uh, 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 phrases, commonly used phrases in Hollywood films. And uh, so they they, uh, went through many, many films. And the phrase that was most commonly used was, let's get out of (laughs) here. And when I heard that, I just realized, of course. Mm -hmm. Now, let's get out of here could mean in a movie, and I've been watching it, really does come up a lot. Let's get out of here because someone's coming. Let's get out of here, whatever the reason is. So on one level, it's physically the body tries to get to another time and place. 
where things will be more pleasant, more agreeable, and to get away from whatever it is that's coming or already there. But then as we move to a more subtle level, this film wisdom, Hollywood wisdom is still at work. The mind is this way or that way. It's feeling this or that. And we have ways of, nope, I don't want to be with this. And we have ways of escape networks, of uh, explaining it away or uh, switching to something else. Or, well, you know, we're all ingenious uh, at uh, not fully facing and experiencing exactly the way it is. And yet the practice, more important really than even sitting for hours on end or walking with a, in a beautiful, almost ballet uh, calmness and attention, is this capacity to open to life as it is. I would say the central discipline of our practice is unconditional opening, learning how to do that. Right now, probably most of us have a lot of conditions to what we will open to. And the practice is coming up against those limits and seeing what is acceptable for us and what isn't. What we're willing to be honest with and what we're not. What we're willing to be mindful of and what we discard or trade in. That capacity to open is something that I think is at the core of our practice. As we begin to see conditions and let go of conditions, we approach an openness that uh, perhaps for some on this planet is unconditional. The Buddha was said to be someone who had mastered come what may seeing. Come what may, no matter what turned up in the mind, uh, there was no movement away from it. There was the capacity to take it in, to meet it with mindfulness and to learn from it. So if you uh, surrender to the schedule and gently, but with some continuity, attempt to be awake in everything that you do, seeing everything as worthwhile, no activities here being routine or inconsequential, because whatever you're doing, no matter what it seems like to you officially, no matter what its surface appearance may be, it's your life in that moment. It's exactly your life in that moment. Whatever we encounter is our life right then and there. So the challenge is, uh, can we meet it? Do we meet our daily life or do we miss it? If we all do this, uh, I think we can have... uh, not only a lot of fun, but a, a really uh, fulfilling retreat together here for these few days. So try to keep that balance in mind. There's an, an intensity. There's a determination. There's effort. But it's, it's got to be done with a certain grace. It's got to be done with a certain compassion for yourself and for others. So it's got a subtle and delicate sensitivity. It's a quiet Passion. Okay. Um, and finally, in terms of this, uh, we're going to attempt to convey a particular method used by the Buddha. Uh, that was the method that the Buddha uh, reports he attained enlightenment with. It's called Anapanasati, the full awareness of breathing. It's where breathing, conscious breathing, is used to not only develop calm concentration, but also insight, both. And the breath is used in this particular method to help you stay in the moment, 
That is to uh, be awake as we move from one situation, one activity to another throughout the day and evening. Uh, we're always breathing. And in this method, we take advantage of that rather unassuming and natural fact. We're always breathing in and breathing out. 24 hours a day. As long as we're alive, we're breathing. Because as long as we're breathing, we're alive. And so, if you keep the breath in mind, as much as possible, that helps you stay awake in the situations that you find yourself in. Combining this conscious breathing with the particular activity that you're doing. Perhaps it's waiting. I don't know, you know, but whatever our day is made up of. Now, none of us are going to be able to be with every breath and not miss a breath from the moment we wake up until we go to sleep. But we can draw upon the fact that we're always breathing as an invaluable ally in practice. It's always there to help you if you're getting caught up in the dream world that the mind makes up. If you're really distracted, if you're really upset, sometimes all it takes is a a cup turning to the breath and just a a few conscious breaths and you're uh, planted firmly again in the present moment. Okay, what I'd like to uh, now do is to uh, get us going in terms of there are two partners in the sitting practice that we'll be learning. One is called shamatha, which is the development of serenity, calm, concentration. Sometimes the word samadhi is used when it really develops and becomes strong as a synonym. We'll be doing that, uh, we'll begin this evening and we'll do it throughout the day tomorrow. I would encourage all of us to do it. And then tomorrow evening the instructions will change to give you all a sense of a full practice of this Anapanasati. I think it would be a good idea if you just stand and stretch and move because you've been sitting already for a while. And uh, if you just limber up a bit or do what comes naturally, we'll then have a, uh, a sitting. Unstable posture for yourself, whether in a chair or bench, crouching, cross-legged in some way. And in this posture, to the best of your ability, guide the body so that it's erect, so that the head, the neck, and the back are in a straight line. that enables the breathing to flow more freely and contributes to staying wakeful. So the body is as erect as possible, not stiff or rigid, not too much to the left or right or tilted forwards or backwards. Find a place of equilibrium, of balance, The standards for posture in Vipassana practice are can we help the body learn how to be stable and comfortable as much as possible? Both stable and comfortable. And if the chin is tilted downwards a little bit, and a good way to begin a retreat is to check your mind right now before we even 
I'll be suggesting the breath naturally if we're doing anapanasati. But before we even do that, where is your mind right now? What have you brought to the retreat with you? Is there some attitude that's coloring the sitting right at this moment that if not acknowledged may inadvertently get between you and your capacity to practice? I didn't know they were going to make us sit every sitting, for God's sake. Who does he think he is? Whatever. Perhaps it's some uh, fear. Perhaps if you're new here, a certain disorientation. Perhaps you came with some uh, concern, some unfinished business at home. Not to banish it, but just to know it. Just to see where you're starting with. What's the mind like? for you at this moment? And what's the body like? What are we bringing to the practice as we formally initiate this retreat? Any tension in the body anywhere? Perhaps the jaw is tight, full of determination. Just see that and it usually is enough to loosen things up. Maybe the shoulders are up high is, again, the same reason. Get a sense of the body and any tension that might be there and see if you can help it just relax. And then notice the obvious fact that at this moment, each and every one of us in this meditation hall is breathing. And I'm assuming that all of you by now know where you're going to pick up the breath. For many, it's at the nose. For others, it's at the abdomen. You may have a third place. Some of you are with the whole breath. But the main thing is to find a way of relating to the breath that enables your attention to be stable. That as much as possible hold your interest where the breath is more accessible, more vivid, even though no place will always be vivid and attractive. But overall, make it clear as to where you're going to watch the breathing, where you're going to be in touch with the breathing. Because if you haven't decided that, then the mind will be all over the place. First with the breath here, then there. And that's just the same mind that we've come here to pacify. So we're experiencing the obvious fact that we're breathing as we sit here. And can we allow that breath to flow naturally? With no designs as to how the breathing should be. If the breath is long or short, fine or coarse, comfortable or uncomfortable, It's okay. We're not trying to create the ideal and perfect breath, but rather we're learning how to be mindful of whatever breath we have. Variations in the breathing turn out to be an excellent way for the mind to be trained, to learn how to be with a wide range of events. 
So we're sitting, breathing, and we're noticing it. We're learning how to come to rest in the in-breath and in the out-breath. when the mind drifts off, you find, you find your attention has slipped off the breathing and you're elsewhere, caught up with something, preoccupied with something. As soon as you notice it, very gently, ease back to the in-breath and the out-breath. The coming back is a a graceful, easy movement, and it's without blame. It's just coming back. We'll have to do that many times, perhaps, before this retreat is over. So the attitude that we bring to it is central. All of us begin with minds that are wild and all over the place. And it's by gently coming back time and time again that the mind learns to settle down and the energy that's scattered, dispersed, becomes unified around the breathing. So we're sitting, we're breathing, we're attending to the breathing. We notice when we're not attending to the breathing, we come back. And another helpful aspect of our practice is try to keep bodily movement to a minimum. Try to keep shifting the posture, changing the posture, scratching, etc., to a minimum. If the body learns to sit still, that has a very salutary effect on the mind. It helps the mind settle down. If we're shifting a lot, That makes it harder for the mind to settle down. But if you, in your best judgment, decide that it's absolutely essential to to move, then do it, but do it knowingly. Don't do it in a mechanical way. That is, be aware of how you slowly and carefully, for example, change your posture, and stay in touch with the breath as you do that. In that way, the current of mindfulness is not broken. You may find, I have certainly found this in my own practice, that it's far more valuable to 
get to know the mind that wants to scratch than to scratch. You can always scratch and then you have immediate relief. But there's a lot of wisdom when we look at the mind and we see how desperate it can become to just get a little bit of relief from this discomfort and that discomfort. Again, not a grim controlling, but an understanding. And so, please settle into the moment with your breath, with your posture. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.